Good morning, everyone. My name's if uh, this is one of your first times here, and I'm glad to be able to share this kind of this space with you. And Adam's uh, little start is great because uh, teenagers or the teenage age plays into this morning a little bit, probably beneficial that mine are not in the room. Uh, because I'm going to tell a few stories about them. But when kids, have you noticed how if maybe this is just something that you become aware of as a parent, or maybe it's something that you can notice even if you haven't been, but when kids get a special treat, they love to make sure that their siblings know about it. Like really love. I remember, I think Soraya, this, she wasn't a teenager, my youngest, I think probably she was like six, and she was out running errands with me, and it was a hot day or something, and she's like, oh, can we like go to McDonald's for, a, you know, an ice cream cone on the way home? And I was like, sure, buck 75, no problem. I think they're more expensive now. But, but uh, so, so we stop, and we get, we get some ice cream at the drive-thru, and I remember on my way home saying, Soraya, this can just be our, our fun little moment. Like, there's no need to... No need to share this with anyone else. Like, let's just have this be just special, right? Just, just you and me, special moment. Anybody who would have been in the car would have been given ice cream had they been in the car. But, you know, I don't feel like going out right again as soon as I get home. And so, lots of nodding. We get home. She bursts through the door. Daddy got me ice cream from McDonald's. I'm like, what do you hope to accomplish from this? Because all it creates is jealousy and antagonism. All that your brothers want to do now is rip you down. This is the nature of sibling rivalry. This is the nature of jealousy. But there is still something, something, uh, you know, in there that, uh, yeah, that, that just begs to say, look, look at me and look at what I experienced. Don't you wish you were me? Uh, that, that is inherent in the human condition, especially among, among young people. And so anyways, this, the story that we're going to look at this morning is a journey about being blessed, being broken, and being used. And used in a positive way, not in a negative way. Um, and where we are, if you haven't been tracking with us, this is the final week we have worked our way through 50 chapters of the book of Genesis. And this is, this is the wrap-up. Um, and uh, and it's, it's kind of funny, I've been talking with a few of you, I'm, we don't typically spend seven weeks, maybe? I think it was seven, seven, eight weeks um, in, in the Old Testament, specifically because if you just take the Old Testament stories and you look at them without the understanding of what Jesus does to transform how you look at the scriptures, to change the perspective that you bring in, then it often ends up with a very different faith. <laughs> you can use the Old Testament stories and the New Testament stories, by the way, um, in certain ways to understand a God that looks nothing like Jesus. However, instead of doing kind of what might be called Marcionism historically, or this idea of, well, there's this God of the Old Testament that we're just going to drop kick out of the room so that we can talk about Jesus, we need to understand that Jesus valued the story that he came from. And when we understand it right, and when we read it in the right way, we begin to see the story of Jesus popping out all over the place, and we begin to see the incredible foreshadowing. These, these books were written with unbelievable care and value. So that's what we're doing, and we're going to look at the final story uh, of 
uh, that, that is told in the book of Genesis from, from the beginning. Now remember, the book of Genesis and the entire scriptures, they had no chapter numbers, no verses. All right, The Genesis scroll was written as one cohesive story. And so when we break it up, we need to be remembering that. And that's why we've been doing what we've been doing. So we've been looking at each of these significant uh, characters through whom the covenant of God came through and saying, why does this matter in real life? All right. And so last week, you'll remember, we looked at the story of Jacob, Jacob, which was kind of the most embarrassing of all the patriarchs. Not exactly a role model in any way. He was, his name meant heel grabber. He was deceitful. He kind of spent his whole life trying to grab a blessing that God wanted to give him freely and kept having to say, you're not getting it, you're not getting it, you're not getting it. Please, just let me work through you instead of trying to do everything yourself and leaving this wake of suffering and harm in so many lives. So that's, that's the story we just came through, all right? And so now we are about to go into a story about that leans into the idea of exile and homecoming. So far, we've seen stories that involve deception, attempted murder, exile, blessings, reconciliation, God's faithfulness in the midst of human evil. All of those things play into this final culmination story. All right? And so it begins, not that ironically, with a teenager. And so what we're told is that Jacob, as a result of four different wives and all of this relational disconnect, ends up having these 12 sons. All right, and these 12 sons are going to eventually be the tribes of Israel that form God's people. And even though Jacob screws it up as much as he can, God still continues to work through. So you probably know where this is going if you have some biblical literacy. If you don't, it's a really good story. So strap on, strap in and get ready for this, uh, this, this journey because it's about the story of Joseph. Now, most of you are very familiar, probably, with the idea that there's this story of Joseph, and he has this amazing technicolor dream coat that that he gets, right? Uh, So so there's a lot more to it than that, but we're going to kind of zip through the story, and then we're going to look back and notice some things that are happening. First thing that we should notice in the story is that, once again, we have a family that loves to play favorites, all right? And so this is the account, they say this is the account of Jacob's family line, but it's really... The next 13 chapters are really about Joseph. So we get the first lines, the first lines of the entire story are about Joseph, who's 17 years old, all right? And he, it says he's tending the flocks, but then we get something different. We hear that he brought their father a bad report about his other brothers, okay? So the first thing we get about the youngest of 12 brothers is that he comes back and he's tattletaling on all of his older brothers, some of whom are old enough to be his father, okay? Uh, so so this, is, this is kind of the, the first glimpse that we get of this rather compulsive teenage kid who has known that because he was the most, almost the most recent born, but weirdly born of his father's favorite wife, not even going to get into that, but, um, but because of this, he knows that he's special. He knows he's daddy's favorite, okay? And so it says, Israel, this is Jacob, remember, name was changed. So Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, brutal, Um, but, you know, dad grew up in a world where the parent is clearly loving one child more than the other. It's been five generations of this. Uh, Because he had been born to him in his old age, um, he made an ornate robe for him. So the the, the word here for robe, um, it either, it can be either translated as ornate or long-sleeved, all right? 
Now, a robe with long sleeves, they both mean the same thing, because a robe with long sleeves is a robe that is not meant for what? Manual labor, right? Okay, so dad gives him a sign that says, I don't want you working like your brothers. You're special. I'll let you be the overseer. You know how well that works, right? The 17-year-old overseeing his 40-year-old brothers. Um, this, is, this is just, I mean, from the, from the get-go, he said, this is a healthy model. All right, so, so this, is, this is how the whole thing starts. And so we, we get this image of, of this young man. He's special. He's got this awesome robe. It means that he's kind of the supervisor of the group. That doesn't go well. Um, and so it's, it's really important that we realize that, um, that this is the clear establishment of Joseph above his brothers. And then we find out that Joseph also has this knack that are related to dreams. So in the book of Genesis, you're going to see three sequences where there's two dreams at a time. And this is the first one that Joseph experiences. And this one is his own dreams. So all of a sudden, Joseph has a dream. Okay? And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. All right? And so Joseph comes up to his brothers and goes, hey, last night, guess what? And he takes a deep breath and he goes... I dreamed that in the field one day the corn gave me a sign. Your 11 sheaves of corn all turned and bowed to mine. Right? So, um, so this is the story. If, you, if you're not familiar with the musical, Donny Osmond sung that. Um, but so he tells his brothers that he got this vision, and then he gets another vision where he is, um, where all of these stars, including the sun and moon, mom and dad, are bowing to him. And he goes and he goes, guys, you're not going to believe this. I just had this dream, and apparently, I'm like the center of the universe. Give me some skin, right? And his brothers are like, you are horrible. Okay, so I want you to notice something in the first dream, because in the first, or the first sequence here of these two dreams, in the first sequence here, there is no knowledge, no idea of any understanding of God, correct? This is just what he says. He says all these things, he finds out later, I won't show all the verses, but even dad is concerned. Dad's like, what, you intend to rule over us? And that's what the brothers say. You intend, you're planning on being in charge of all of us, is this? And so there begins to be this growing level of animosity and jealousy. But in the midst of it, Joseph is just doing what a teenage brain does, which is very, very little at this point, right? Because it's not fully cooked yet. And so Joseph just thinks, Sure, like this is, this is great. So there's no understanding of what this might mean, and there's certainly no understanding of if this came from God or any humility related to the story. So, yes, so this is what happens. So the time goes on, all right, and Joseph goes out a bit later to go and check on his brothers who are out in the field. So here we get this clear supervisor, all right? Um, and so, so anyways, um, they say... When they see him coming from a distance, hey, let's, let's kill this younger brother who has favor with our father. We've heard this attitude before, right? Played out over and over almost each week in some way. Um, but Reuben, the oldest, he knows that they're going to get in huge trouble if they kill their brother, right? <sighs> Go figure. Um, so he says, no, let's throw him in a pit instead. So I want you to notice this because here's what's happening. So Joseph, he's got, oh boy. There's the coat with the nice wide sleeves. I should have my wife do this. She's a costume designer. That. 
it's pretty close. Uh, so here's what happens. So Joseph is all the way above, and here's, here's what happens. The brothers, they say, okay, this is a good plan. Let's throw him in the pit. So they seize him. They take his coat off. They rip his authority away that's been kind of unjustly given to him, yeah? So they rip his authority away, and they throw him in an old water pit that's dry, all right? So take a look at that movement. Okay, so, so he begins his descent, this one who's been blessed. So they grab him, do all this stuff, rip his coat off, throw him in a well, and he stays there, okay? So then what happens, um, oh, they have a meal. Okay, it's really important, just a little thing to note as we work through the story, that in the book of Genesis, food and deception are constantly intertwined. I'm not saying that to say that when we engage in meal communities and stuff, that this is a negative thing. I'm saying that the writer of the Genesis story wants you to be reminded of all of the times that evil is connected as this, like, physical temptation, like eating the apple and, like, having that stew. And all of a sudden, they sit and they eat a meal while Joseph comes down to the pit. So there's all of this linkage to everything. Okay. And then their great uncle's people, the Ishmaelites, they see in the distance, okay? The Ishmaelites were um, a nomadic people, and they are traveling down to Egypt, okay? And they decide, hey, it's actually Judah's idea. Judah is one of the brothers, okay? Um, and Judah says, hey, let's sell him as a slave. Let's traffic him. We can make some money. We get rid of him. This is great. And so it works. That's what they do. And now they're going down to Egypt. Very, very, very important, Okay, so the next thing that happens, he goes from his place of authority down into the pit, down to Egypt, all right? Now, while he's, oh, and do you know what the brothers do? They say, they take his coat, they rip it up, and then they're like, we need to figure out how to do this deception. And so does anyone remember what happens in this, in this part of the story? They go and they kill something. What is it? A goat. Okay, all right, they kill a goat and take the goat's blood, put it all over the robe, bring it back to their dad, who is who? Jacob. And what did Jacob do to get the blessing from his father, from Esau? He wore a goat skin, so it's this incredible poetic justice, right? So Jacob is now deceived by a goat, and Jacob deceived his father through a goat. So apparently the stories were passed down, and they're like, hey, do you remember what dad did to his dad? That just might work, and it does. So... They rip this coat up. They say, hey, Dad, I, I mean, I guess, not sure. Is this, is this, is this, your, son's, is this your son's coat, they ask? Is, is this your son's coat? It looks familiar. And he's like, oh, no, he must have been ripped apart by wild animals, like a goat. And, and so anyways, Jacob is so distraught. The brothers are happy. They've gotten rid of this, this one who was a pain, who was the, fa the father's favorite. And then we get a little bit of a break from the brothers, and we start following Joseph's story. We're going to breeze through this just a little bit. Um, the story does not end here, because we are told that the Lord is with Joseph, and the Lord is blessing Joseph's work. So this is going to be the start of a reversal from the exile that Joseph has been, been doing, but not a full one. So Joseph is sold, eventually, to this rich official of Pharaoh, whose name is Potiphar. All right? So, so Joseph goes all the way to Egypt and into Pharaoh's kind of widest, widest household. 
and works for one of his officials. And um, essentially, everything he does works really well. He's good at what he does. He's good at managing. Potiphar sees that. Potiphar says, God's kind of with you in some unique ways, so I think I want to keep you around. And he becomes the household leader. You probably know the next story, which is Potiphar's wife. Uh, she tries to seduce Joseph. Joseph says, no, like, I've been given freedom to have everything in this household except you. I'm not going to do that. She gets really upset, frames him for rape, and says that he did the exact thing that she tried to do to him. And Potiphar, by the way, he could have just killed Joseph, so he knows that it's a lie. So just, just, just to be aware of that, like, the death penalty would have been quite appropriate for that. So anyways, he just throws him in jail, probably because he knows his wife's been doing this kind of stuff, and, but he has to save face. So he goes down to jail, and while he's in jail, he meets two other people who have made Pharaoh angry. Oh, sorry, we got another downward movement. Okay. So we got out in Egypt, and we go down to jail. All right. Literally, this is the pit at the end. All right. So he's all the way down in jail. Um, oh, let's see. Here we go. But while Joseph is there in prison, we are told in, in chapter 39, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So notice the promise that Yahweh is with Joseph continues on, and that favor does not mean prevention of evil. I think it's really important that even in the Old Testament we see this. That favor does not mean prevention of evil. It means presence of God and the promise that God is going to continue working in the situation. The promise of a future. Okay? So, he's in complete captivity and he bottoms out. And then we get the second of the dream sequence. Or the second of the dream sequences. All right? And he meets two guys who have made Pharaoh angry. One of them is Pharaoh's baker. And one of them is what, what is translated as the cupbearer. It literally is Pharaoh's captain of drinking. All right? Um, so, so anyways, these two are in jail. They've made him mad. We don't know why they've made Pharaoh mad, but for whatever reason, they're in jail. And they both have dreams. And they're curious about what's going on. And in the midst of it, all right, they, they can't interpret these. Um, and, and Joseph gets into a conversation with them. And Joseph is like, I think I might be able to understand this. But this is the second set of dream sequences. And they say, we, don't, we both had dreams, but there's no one to interpret them. And then Joseph says, check it out. Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. Do you see a, a slight shift going on in that statement? Versus, hey, everybody, I just had this dream, and everyone's bowing down to me. All of a sudden, you get this, this different tone that is happening while Joseph has experienced some pretty deep suffering, much of it having no, not even being his fault. But in the midst of it, he now says, well, don't interpretations, no, no one can interpret them. He says, well, interpretations belong to God, but, but tell me, you know? And so, so there's this, this shift, and you're going to see a shift that comes even further in a few moments. Um, so, so they say, well, we have these dreams about lifting up cups and about yeah, all these things. And, and so Joseph, he gets the interpretations right. And he says, actually, both of these dreams are about your heads being lifted up, but in very different ways. So, captain of drinking, your head is going to be lifted back up to be able to look the Pharaoh in the face and serve him wine once again. You're going to be restored. 
okay? And then he says to the, uh, to the baker, your head is going to be lifted up, but it's going to be like lifted up <coughs> off of your body. And you're going to be, you're going to be beheaded in three days. Sorry about that. And both of those things come true, all right? And so when the uh, captain of drinking leaves jail, Joseph says, hey, remember me, please, if there's a time. <laughs> like, remember that I helped you. And, of course, the guy immediately forgets. So it looks like there's this beautiful moment, and then you have two more years of waiting, which is, again, just this really deep kind of reminder um, about the fact that there's this promise that's staying there, but the timeline is often so, so deeply frustrating. Joseph has literally done everything he can do, and then we get in one sentence, we get a two-year gap. And we think we're impatient sometimes when we have to wait for the microwave to finish its 30-second warm-up, right? So, so there's this story that's unfolding, but it's, it, when we read it, it unfolds so fast, and in reality, it's unfolding pretty slowly. All right, so two more years pass, and Pharaoh all of a sudden can't sleep. And Pharaoh's having dreams of his own, so we enter the third and final pair of dreams, all right? So Pharaoh begins to have these dreams where these two things happen. They're, they're exact parallel dreams. He has a dream about a seven, seven big, plump, fat cows that are healthy, and then seven really skinny cows come from behind them, eat the fat cows, but they don't get fat. And he has the same thing happen with, with heads of grain or corn, depending on the interpretation, where these really healthy grain comes, and then really sickly grain comes, and they eat the healthy grain, but they don't get healthier or bigger. And so he's like, what's going on? And finally, the cupbearer is like, oh, and none of his people can help. None of Pharaoh's people who are supposed to be good at dreams can help. Finally, the guy, the captain of drinking says, hey, shoot, I think I was supposed to mention this earlier, but I, there's this guy that helped me out with my dream a long time ago, and he was right, so maybe you should talk to him. So that's exactly what happens. So Pharaoh calls for Joseph. So all of a sudden, Joseph has gone from, you know, being favorite child, all of a sudden to down, 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 and then before he realizes it, he's in front of, right in front of Pharaoh, face to face. All right? And Pharaoh says, I heard that you're good at this stuff. What can you do for me? And here's what he says. So I had a dream. Nobody can interpret it. I've heard it said that when you hear a dream, you can. Right? And look at Joseph's response this time. I can't do it. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Look, all of you are bowing down to worship me. Isn't that cool? Isn't it God's job to interpret dreams? But tell me, all the way to, I can't do it, but God will give the answer. There is a complete change in the attitude of Joseph's role in all of this that moves from I'm at the center to I'll share this space with God. <laughs> you know, God can interpret dreams, but tell me, all the way to I can't do it, but think God will work. And Joseph is like non-existent here. It's assumed that Joseph is going to be a part of this process, but Joseph is no longer in the forefront. God has taken center stage. And, and there's this, this process of this moving. So 
So this is what we get, all right? And, um, and so this journey toward humility and toward trusting God to be the one who guides and the one who provides is something that's going to be reinforced by Jesus all over the place, over and over, okay? Um, so, so all of a sudden we get this humble understanding of partnership instead of a quick assumption of arrogance and power. All right, um, so he interprets the dream right, <clears throat> and he says, listen, Pharaoh, you're going to have great, seven years of great crops, great blessing in the land, and then you're going to have a famine, and it's going to wipe away everything that you thought you had, and the land is going to go into crisis, all right? And so what you really need is you need to find someone with wisdom who can help guide you through this. And Pharaoh says something so interesting. This plan seemed good to Pharaoh and all of his officials, so he asked them, can we find anyone like this man in whom is the spirit of God, the Ruach Elohim? The last time and the only time so far in the Bible that this phrase has, been, has appeared is in Genesis 1-2. Ready for this? Do you remember the spirit of God hovers over the waters? It's the first, in the beginning was God, right? In the beginning God created the heavens. And, and the next line is, and the spirit of God hovered over the waters. So you get God the Spirit of God hovering over, and then you get people who are created to rule over creation and keep screwing it up, right? Just a couple chapters later. Given the calling to rule and subdue the earth, and all of a sudden now, after 50 chapters of really, really messed up family issues and, and all sorts of, of, of violence and, and problems, here you get Someone who now has the Spirit of God who is going to rule and reign over all of the world, which was Egypt at the time, rule over all the land. And this time, they're going to do it as a healthy representative of God for the sake of goodness, not for their own power. So, so you get this question, who has the Spirit of God? And finally, you have someone who at least on some level is able to wield that authority for good, okay? So you're seeing the story come around here, all right? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt, all right? Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger, sign of authority. He dressed him in robes of fine linen. Oh, look at this, look at this. We've got another robe coming, but this robe, all right, kind of looks like a Methodist choir gown. Oh, yeah, a bat, too. Yeah. Um, oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> like, where's the... <laughs> What's that like? The bat signal in the middle there. Um, so, so what we get is all of a sudden, now we get Joseph in a place of authority, but here's the difference. Joseph's authority now has come through humble wisdom and an awareness of God's work in his life, and it has come with the purpose of doing great good. Where before the authority was given to him because daddy was playing favorites and he was not able to wield that authority for anything good. <clears throat> and so you see this vision that maybe God actually did give Joseph at the beginning misunderstood, possibly misused, finally coming to fruition in some healthy ways. And this begins the final, the final um, kind of set of stories in Joseph's life. And it's going to look so different, all right? 
But I want you to notice this, by the way. So when Joseph gets his authority, this true job that has been given to someone who is now true, that is going to involve saving people and caring for the world, authority lands in the hands of one worthy person who will rule for the sake of others. This is the foreshadowing to what will one day be ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. All right, so back to Canaan. Jacob realizes when the famine hits, they're all going to die. All right, so he's heard that Egypt is doing much better. So he sends his sons, all but his other favorite, still playing favorites, Jacob, all but his other favorite, Benjamin. And he sends them all out, all right? So they go, and they find themselves literally right in front of Joseph, but they don't recognize Joseph. Decades have passed, and they thought Joseph was dead. So they don't recognize him. Joseph is all, you know, Egyptian, tatted out, whatever. And they don't recognize him, but Joseph immediately, obviously, knows what's going on. So what they do is... Um, they, they ask him, we're starving, we're starving, we'll do anything. And Joseph tests them. But he tests them not to deceive them for evil, but to find out if they've become more truthful. So he says, I, I don't think you need food. I think you're spies, and you're trying to look for our weaknesses. And they say, no, 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 we're from this family. We have a younger brother back at home. Our father sent us. And he said, okay. He said, well, if that's true, go get your youngest brother and bring him back. And I'm going to hold one of your other brothers until that time. And they are really terrified because they know that that's not going to go over well. But that's what happens. So he sends them back with enough food to eat for a while, and he holds on to Simeon. And so time goes by, all right, and, um, and we continue to, to journey on, and they have a chance here. Joseph has given them a chance to say that something bad happened to Simeon, right, just like they said to Joseph. He's given them a chance to live into that deceit and just move on with their lives. But this time they don't. They go back and they tell dad the truth. All right? Of course, Dad says, well, I'm not sending Benjamin, so you can let Simeon rot out there, uh, which not great. Once again, Jacob. But so, so anyways, we continue on, and the famine gets worse, and they run out of all that food. And, and finally, they say, yo, Dad, we've got to go back, but we can't go back without Benjamin. We have to bring him back. Like, otherwise, this, this keeper, you know, Pharaoh's second in command, isn't going to even have an audience with us. So it continues to go on. And finally, in the desperation, Judah says, listen, let us take Benjamin. I am personally going to guarantee his safety, even if it costs me my life. Okay? Really, really important to see what's happening. There's integrity that's growing among the family. So that's what happens. So they send Benjamin back with all of them. They go back. Joseph sees them. He's so overwhelmed, he has to run out of the room, and he just starts bawling because he's missed his brother. Remember, his brother, they were the only ones, Benjamin's the only one that shared the same mom, so they have a special connection. Uh, so, so this is what happens, and he comes back, and he's trying to kind of work through all of his complex emotions. Um, they still don't know that he's their brother, all right? But then Joseph decides that he must know who they really are. So he activates their jealousy, okay? And what he does is he serves them all a meal, but he gives Benjamin five times as much. He makes Benjamin the favorite child all over again, okay? And then when he sends them on their way, he hides his special golden cup in Benjamin's bag. They are each carrying as much as they can handle. So he knows that this is happening. He sends his officials afterwards saying, someone stole my cup, you need to, we need to search. And they said, none of us stole it, but if any of them did, make them a slave forever, by all means, because they know nothing, they didn't do anything. And they find it in Benjamin's cup. And then there's this 
complete chaos. And, and, and they, um, they say, oh my gosh, we all have to be your slaves. He said, no, 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 I don't want that. I just want him. I just want him to stay forever. And he will be enslaved. And Judah comes up and he says, please take me instead. I will be your slave. Now, what did Judah do all those decades ago? His idea was the one to enslave Joseph. And so Judah comes and he says, take me. I will give my life because I want to care for our father. He will be so heartbroken, it'll cost him his life. And so there's this moment of such integrity, and Joseph cannot handle it anymore. Rips his whatever off, says, it's me. They can't believe it. They're terrified. But it's this really emotional moment, and he, and he tries to communicate with them, I'm not angry with you. I just want to be restored to my family. And there's this, this beauty and all this incredible um, moment because they have not let their jealousy win out and sacrificed Benjamin and taken the fall. So, enough is enough. All this happens. Joseph offers forgiveness and he speaks to how God worked in the middle of the evil, not letting it have the last words. And out of the ashes of their violence, Joseph says God used the situation to turn the story upside down and, bringing about, and bring about the saving of lives. He's going to say this later in chapter 50. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. All right, so then don't be afraid. Now, let's just do a tiny bit of theology real quick here for one minute. All right, the Hebrew word that Joseph uses for intend is kasav. All right? Now, kasav, it doesn't mean, it doesn't simply mean planning for something to happen. Kasav also means imagining and inventing. All right? So, so, um, so it's, it's about creating something new, something that's surprising and different. So in a story like this, while Joseph's brothers are imagining a way to destroy Joseph, God is imagining what redemption could look like if people do and when people do evil to Joseph. All right? So God is equally imagining good while others are imagining evil. The reason that we talk about this is because you can look and say, okay, so God, God just sent Joseph <clears throat> into the pit, got him trafficked, right? Got him accused because God wanted to teach him a lesson. And there is a deep level of theological um, teaching that reinforces that. That, well, if God's ultimate purpose is good, then God might do really horrible things to you to get you there. Like, God gave you the cancer so that you could learn to be grateful. This is not the nature of God. All right? And, I, I mean, those of you who have been journeying for the last dozen years, you've heard this ad nauseum. God is not the author of evil. God is the redeemer of evil. So instead of God causing these bad things so that something good happens, God is deeply involved in the inner workings of the Spirit, working to open doors in ways where redemption is always possible because in God's economy, nothing is wasted. When we have that as our foundation, it often alleviates the tension that we feel with God because we often think, well, like, is God doing all of this, all these bad things, just so good can come? No, that's not the story. That's not the story that Jesus teaches. Jesus teaches God's heart is for good, but people tend to do horrible things, and the world is often very broken. But God is at work to redeem and restore it, always, in all things. And then we can rest in God's goodness 
instead of like a little bit of like fear that God's going to do whatever God wants to me just to accomplish some purposes. So we need to be really, really aware of that because it can cause us to do great harm to other people. Had friends who lost family members and were told that God just needed them more at seven years old. God just needed your dad more. Do you realize the hatred that that created for God for the rest of my friend's life? Like, we have, to, we have to understand the impact of some of our theology. All right, so that was light. Um, okay, so there's this moment of powerful reconciliation, and Joseph is going to have to assure his brothers over and over again, like three different times, I'm not going to harm you. Like, as soon as Jacob dies in a little bit, the brothers freak out again. And they're like, um, we need to take a message and say, uh, Dad said, don't hurt us. <laughs> Joseph's like, you don't get it. Like, I'm not intending to harm you. I want reconciliation. You see a complete change in Joseph. He finally is one of the most mature characters in all of Genesis. We see a groundedness there. It's beautiful. Okay. Um, so anyways, uh, Joseph sends for Jacob. He says, bring dad back. I want to I bring the whole family in here and for the rest of his life. They find this little place to settle. Um, in, uh, yeah. And they settled in this, this land called Goshen. Uh, which they acquired property there, and they were fruitful and increased greatly in number. Can you just take a moment, if you've been journeying with us for seven weeks, and notice the last line? What are the promises? What are the promises of the covenant that, that Abraham was given? I'm going to take you into a new land, and I'm going to, you're going to grow and multiply your family. I'm going to make you into a great nation. This is not that land, but it's a little glimpse that even in the midst of exile, even when we haven't arrived at the final destination, God is creating little moments. God is creating little opportunities to experience the promised land, even when you're not actually in the full promised land. You want to know what's even better? Goshen is three Hebrew words, or three Hebrew letters. There's no vowels in Hebrew. And so it's our letter G, our letter S, and our letter N. And the word for garden is our letter G and our letter N. So it's a play on words here from the beginning that when you read it, that they settled, just think of it as, as like um, the best, the best uh, scholar that I've heard did a wordplay with Garshan. Like, and they settled in the great Garshan. <laughs> like it's, it's like the garden. It's, a, rest, it's, it's the, a small restoration of the fact that God builds gardens even in the midst of exile. That God builds places of refuge where you can be reminded of God's promises even when everything hasn't worked out fully. Because it hasn't worked out fully yet. There's a long story that's going to happen for the next 400 years plus that we're not getting into today. Um, but God is making these gardens even in exile. So this would be a great way to end the story if Goshen actually was Eden again and if this little family was all of humanity. But it's not. It's just a remnant of Abraham's family with a longer story that's about to be unfolding. But it's a foreshadow of what's coming. And it happens through both the suffering and the exaltation of the beloved son. Yeah? So when Jesus talks about the scriptures, all being about him, pointing to him, like he might have been telling the truth. That, that this entire story about redemption, there's all these shadows of what Jesus will one day become. All right? And this is how then Joseph fits into that biblical narrative. Okay, so now I want to just take a few minutes, now that we just told the whole story, 
to talk about some of the themes that might be more personally impactful. Because we need to be good, we need to understand the story that we're given. Like, it's important just to tell these stories and understand how they all flow together. But here's a couple things that, um, that, that might be helpful for us to walk away with, like, as you're thinking about your own life this week. The first is that in Joseph's life, his influence was meaningless until it became tempered with humility. Like, he was given quite a bit of influence right off the bat. Jacob was a fairly rich guy. He wanted to give everything to Joseph. Joseph was in charge. But it wasn't tempered with humility. And so his influence never led to anything early on. Um, and then through his suffering, he began to deepen his both, even though it was unjust suffering, he began to deepen his awareness of God and temper his view of himself. All right, so, so there's this journey um, of, of what tends to happen as we experience brokenness in our lives and as we begin to acknowledge or not acknowledge the presence of God with us through all of that. Um, that suffering and humility are the two most significant elements in this story that are undergird, undergirding everything else. Um, I find it interesting in life what suffering can do. Suffering can lead us in two directions, right? On, on one level, suffering can lead us to the desire to see others suffer as well. So if, if we suffer and hurt, then that can lead us to a place of bitterness and woundedness where we desire that other people feel the same pain that we've felt. That's where revenge comes from. It's where bitterness comes from. It's where the desire for karma comes from. All of these things, or even apathy in other people's suffering. Well, I had it worse. So, so, so it, can, it can break something deep within our spirits. Suffering can. And that can lead us to the desire to see others suffer more. But there's another direction that it can go. And that is, if we allow ourselves to receive the gift of God's love in the midst of our suffering, not God being the author, but knowing that God is with us, like in the jail, that God is with us in the midst of it, then something begins to shift. And in our suffering we begin to desire to alleviate the suffering of other people. So if we realize God's goodness in the midst of our brokenness and we become shaped in new ways, we emerge from there saying, I want to alleviate suffering because I've suffered. So on one level, I want to see others suffer because I've suffered. And on the other, I want to alleviate suffering because I've suffered. And the difference is being able to open ourselves up to the love and redemption and care of God in the midst of that. Um, it's powerful. Our, our desire for revenge can become com replaced with the desire for collective wholeness. And I find this really true on so many of the, the issues that we face today. There's so many social issues and everything like that where those who have been wounded have the opportunity to say, do we want to desire wholeness together? Or do we want to just see others get theirs? And the Jesus way is to learn how to love and restore. And justice means wholeness. Justice doesn't mean punishing the bad guys. It means restoring the world to wholeness. And so we have an opportunity to participate in that. Um, and so, uh, yeah. So with, with that, I think the, the only other thing that I think is kind of cool, and I mentioned this earlier, but if it's, if it's helpful to have, um, to have a little... Uh, access to work with. One of the things that we see in, in Joseph's life 
is as his humility grew throughout his life, um, the, the ability to influence for good became became exponentially larger. And that humility came from an openness to God. So I wonder what that might look like in our own lives. We might have a lot of influence, but biblically speaking, Jesus-y speaking, our influence to do great good is only going to be impacted by our own humility in using that influence in the right ways. Um, and, uh, and so, I, I don't know, we all have influence in one way or another. So what does it look like for your influence to be tempered with humility? What does it look like for you to give your influence <clears throat> to God and say, Lord, shape these moments? Shape how I use whatever influence I have. Um, it might be with your kids or family members. It could be with your coworkers or people that work for you. Um, it could just be in your social media presence. It could be whatever. Um, we all have influence on some levels. How do we use it tempered with humility? So there's a lot of hope in all of this, friends. Uh, the origin story that we have can be seen in a way that reminds us of God's goodness rather than the Bible becoming a proof-texting argument of a harsh and demanding God. Um, Jesus reveals what God is like fully and helps us see this story in, in hope-filled ways because we know what's coming, right? A chosen people continuing to be built, but the, the purpose of being chosen is to extend God's blessing to all people. That's the ultimate redemption. A unique people being formed that show the world a different value system and invite them into the beauty of it. That's our job. A growing family that lives liberated, set free from sin, from fear, from death, from the power of hatred and selfishness, and inviting others into that too. So it's a good story. It's a good set of stories, and I'm really, really glad that it culminates in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, as we uh, have reflected on the how our story, how our collective story begins, I pray that you'd help bring the things to light that we need to hold on to, uh, but that we would be able to see your character even in these ancient stories, um, breaking through in ways that remind us of the ultimate beauty um, and redemption that Jesus brings. So keep forming us by your living word. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.